Good morning. Uh, this morning's scripture is Matthew 5, verses 21 through 37, and I'll be reading from the New International Version. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to, into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is, it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. The word of God for the people of God. Well, welcome to our third and final installment of our Sermon of the Mount series. If you haven't uh, been here the last, oh, got, we're going to back up just a little bit and hopefully we won't get that little, uh, little RF glitch that's going on. If you haven't been here for the previous two weeks or missed one of the weeks, um, you can go to the, our YouTube page on online and you can see the previous sermons if you wish to experience them. Or you can go to our website and you'll find links to go and, and hear sermons that you've missed. But I am going to provide a quick review of what we've gone over the previous two Sundays before I actually get into today's teaching. On the first week, we discussed and explored Jesus' Beatitudes, the, the place where Jesus uh, turns the idea of who God is with on its ear. You see... What Jesus says is that instead of God being with the wealthy, the powerful, the strong, and the influential, Jesus portrays a God who is with the broken, those who are sad, those who are meek, those who seek peace, those who are pure in heart, 
and those who desire righteousness so much that they are persecuted for it. These are the people with whom God is with. And these are the people whom God, who, who will see the kingdom of God realized. And then last week we talked about how many of the people who were, who were there in the crowd might have left because Jesus wasn't singing their tune. His kingdom of God wasn't the kingdom that they were looking for. Jesus didn't talk about a rising economy or lower taxes or freedom from the Romans. So they left. And those who remained were those who heard a message of hope and what Jesus was offering because they were broken, because they were grieving, because they were poor in spirit, or maybe because they were simply poor. And they desired a different way than the one that was being offered by the Pharisees or the temple or the Herodians or the Zealots. And these are the people that Jesus looked at and said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So shine hard, people. Shine hard. Because the world needs your light. Because the world needs your flavor. And this week we're going to move into Jesus' direct teaching about how he wants them to shine, about how he wants them to be salt. You see, last week's reading ended with a statement, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And it's quite a statement, because the Pharisees were considered the best of the best in Hebrew society. These were lay people, not priests. These were lay people who trained themselves in the law of Moses, in the words of the prophets, and spent time scouring the scriptures and exploring practical applications of the law so that all of Israel might be holy, that they would be a nation of priests. And their holiness would, would convince God to come and intervene and throw off their oppressors and restore their glory. They were the best of the best, and these were the people that you wanted to have as neighbors. They were good people, righteous people. So how could someone's righteousness be better than a Pharisee's righteousness? Well, we're about to find out. You see, I'm hoping that you have your scriptures open. And if you don't, you can take one of the Bibles or you can take out your, your phone or, uh, and, and, and go to Matthew chapter 5. Go to verse 21. And we only read up to a certain point. I, we only read up to, I think, 37. Um, but I'm really going to deal with all the way to the end. We're going to go all the way to, to verse 48. But Jesus begins to explain what he means about a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. 
And he does it in a series of formulaic statements that follow uh, a pattern of, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And there are six of these statements. And they concern anger. They concern adultery. They concern divorce. They concern oaths. Retaliation. And hatred. And I don't have time to unpack all of these or to really jump in and talk about the different images because there's some hyperbole that he employs here. He doesn't really mean that you should pluck out your eye or cut off your hand. And there are a lot of nuances in his section about divorce. I don't have, I don't have time to unpack all of these. But I want you to notice that of the six, five of them deal with conflict. Five of them deal with conflict and how those who follow Jesus should respond in conflict, how they should act in the midst of conflict. And in particular, I'm going to focus in on three of these, okay? And the first one comes to us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, if you are angry with your brother or sister, or if you insult a brother or sister, you are liable to the council. So in other words, the Ten Commandments said, you shouldn't murder. And everybody agreed that murdering someone else was a bad thing. But then Jesus comes and says, but something deeper is behind that. And the truth is, is you could not murder someone, but you could go around and, you're, and just be angry with everybody. Be angry with everyone, and it's just as bad as if you murdered someone. Because your heart isn't right. Because your heart isn't right. And then he goes on to say, if you call someone a fool, then you are liable to the council. That somehow you have stepped outside of what it means to be a righteous person. Do we call each other fools? Do we insult one another? Is that a way that we respond when we're angry? I'm just going to let that sit there a little bit. And we're going to jump up to Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, if you are struck on the right cheek, turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. Now, Jesus is referring to some Roman laws that a Roman centurion could require anybody to carry their, their equipment with, for a mile. And Jesus says, well, if, if a centurion asks you to carry something for a mile, then you should carry it a second mile. Do we like it when we have to do things that are forced upon us? And how do we respond in those moments? Do we respond with anger? 
Or do we respond in a way that is relational with that other person? I'm just going to let that sit a little more. And we're going to go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. You have heard it said, you love your neighbor, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of God. I don't know if I have to add anything more to that right now. But these were statements, these were truisms that were a part of the midrash um, that the Pharisees and people who went to the synagogue engaged in. They were common truths. They were considered to be proverbs and wisdom, and they were passed around. And Jesus says, oh, no, 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 no. We are, my people, you are not going to behave by these. These are not going to shape you. Instead, this is what is going to shape you. Now, something happened recently which brought these very teachings of Jesus into focus. And it happened 10 days ago, the morning after our president was acquitted of impeachment charges by the Senate. And it was the, the White House um, National Prayer Breakfast. And the White House had invited a, a Harvard-educated biblical scholar who is a uh, columnist. His name is Arthur Brooks. And Mr. Brooks had to get up and give a devotional before the president would get up and give the keynote uh, address to the gathering. And Mr. Brooks's devotional was entitled, Love Your Enemies. And because Mr. Brooks is someone who is probably reading through the lectionary, he happened to be in the Sermon of the Mount and he thought, hmm, there might be something to offer here at the national prayer breakfast. And so he entitled his devotional, Love Your Enemies. And he based it upon Jesus' teaching, which you will find in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 44. And he said this, he said, well, he, he read that. You have heard it said, love your enemy, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But Jesus told his followers, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And his argument at the prayer breakfast was that if we say we are followers of Jesus, then we should take that lesson seriously. And he felt that in today's poisonous political environment, doing so was the only way to bring the country back together. And maybe you've heard what happened next. The president's scheduled speech was, as I said, right after the devotional, and the president got up, and he looked over at Mr. Brooks, and he opened with these words. He said, Arthur, I don't know if I agree with you. And then he addressed everyone else. I don't know if Arthur is going to like what I am going to say. As everybody knows, my family, our great country, and your president have been put through a terrible ordeal by some very dishonest and corrupt people. And he would go on. And in the aftermath, people were very vocal in their response to what happened. 
And many people rightly pointed out that the president didn't just disagree with Mr. Brooks, he was disagreeing with Jesus. And Mr. Brooks, well, he became a target both of those who support the president as well as those who are critical of him. Many of the emails and comments that got posted were laced with profanity and insults, suggesting that either he needed to support the president or he needed to express utter disdain for the president. And here's the thing. Nobody listened to Mr. Brooks. And nobody is listening to Jesus. We have a problem with contempt in our society, and it's only getting worse. I only have to open up my Facebook page and scroll down my newsfeed to see that it's filled with angry political posts that are filled with name-calling and with contempt for those who hold different ideas and notions of what needs to be done. In my particular feed, most of these posts come from people who proclaim that they are followers of Christ. Something isn't right. In many posts, I see things like libertards or repugnicans. And there are a lot of others that I really can't repeat in this setting right here. But these things get lobbied back and forth. I see idiot. I see fool. I see all these things getting thrown back and forth. I see people who do put thoughtful posts out there only to find in the comments that they are dismissed with name calling, with insults, and with cliche rather than with reasonable exchange of thought and idea. And as we head into election season, it's only going to get worse. It's a nationwide issue. It's a worldwide problem. And I only have this pulpit to speak from, to preach from. And I only have you to preach to. I only have you who will listen. So I hope that you will hear me and listen to what I have to say. We have to be better. We have to be better. We, when we find ourselves in conflict with one another, we have to be better with the ways in which we deal with that conflict. When we find ourselves in disagreement with others, we have to be better with how we conduct ourselves in the midst of disagreement. We have to handle our anger better. The Apostle Paul warns the early church that they cannot let their anger lead them to sin. And I think it's good advice because you're going to get angry. It's a natural emotion and it's a natural response to a variety of situations. But don't let your anger dictate your actions and your response. Lashing out when we are angry only adds fuel to conflict. And it often creates more damage that will need repair. 
Anger can motivate us to seek justice, and anger can motivate us to seek peace. But those actions come from a much more rational place than, we, than when we are feeling the heat of our anger. So when you find yourself angry, take a moment. What is the term? Take a chill pill? Or take a pause? Practice the pause? Take a breath? Let the heat of anger pass and allow the reasons why you're anger, angry to help you develop a rational, reasonable response that is constructive rather than destructive. The other thing we have to do is we have to let go of our love of vengeance and our love for retaliation. I mean, literally, when people talk about getting even, you know where that comes from? Getting even actually comes from that old saying of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth that Jesus simply says is not supposed to dictate our action. And yet, how often do we use getting even as a rule to justify our response to when we feel we've been wronged? Hey, if you insult me, then guess what? I'm going to insult you back. Because you said this, I am going to say this. Because you did this, I am going to do that. We say we're justified in doing these things. But I'm going to say to you, that kind of attitude is anti-Christ. And I'm using that term by choice, anti-Christ. It is an anti-Christ attitude. You see, we cannot respond in like for like. Mahatma Gandhi is famous for saying, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth leaves everybody blind and toothless. And you see, we cause damage and we cause harm every time we retaliate in like. And it only builds contempt between those in conflict. It's not helpful. We need to listen to Jesus. And the last thing I want to say is that we need to take seriously the idea of what it means to love our enemies. This statement represents Jesus' Jesus's most original, unique, and revolutionary ethical teaching. And yet we so often ignore it or we downplay it. And yet it was the central part of his teaching, and it was central in the way that the early church viewed Christ and the way of Christ and the way they were supposed to live. But we have no problem talking about our hate. And even if we don't discuss it, our hate, that is, it doesn't take long to listen to our conversation to understand what is roiling just beneath the words that we use. 
especially in the way that we fling around our contempt. Now, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., once when he was teaching about this very same passage, he said, if you hate your enemies, you have no way to redeem and to transform your enemies. And what he's saying is that no one has ever been insulted into agreeing with you. In fact, the single best way to keep people from seeing a new light is to call them a name, call them an idiot, call them foolish. And Jesus says that we're supposed to pray for those who persecute us. We're supposed to pray for our enemies. We're supposed to love them. It might be one of the hardest things to do. Because when we enter into prayer and we are earnestly praying for someone who we consider to be an enemy, if we are praying for someone who persecutes us, we run the risk of our prayers actually having an impact upon us. You see, we pray because usually we want to see something happen. But C.S. Lewis says that if we really pray, the reality is that prayer changes us. The most important reason we pray is that we need to be changed, that our hearts need to be changed. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Now, I need to be clear. Jesus is not saying that these things are going to bring us into agreement. Jesus himself had many disagreements in his ministry and in his life. He had many disagreements with those around him. He had issues with the Pharisees, with the Sadducees, with the Herodians, with the scribes, with the Romans, with the Zealots. He even had issues with his own family. So Jesus isn't asking us to downplay disagreement. He's asking us to handle it differently than the world around us. He's asking us to be shaped more by his exhortations and direction than by the prevailing wisdom that we encounter around us. And yes, Jesus is asking that his statements, that his teachings, that his directions, would shape us more than even the Hebrew scriptures. So what I'm saying here is that as we sit here on Sunday morning, we don't all think alike. We have places of disagreement, whether that's politically, whether that's about how things are happening in the church, whether that be about our denomination, and I'm not saying that it's important for us to, that, that we're supposed to downplay those, those disagreements. In fact, I'm going to tell you, you may keep up your actions, your protests, your support, that you may vote your conscience, but how we treat one another is tantamount to following Jesus. In fact, it might be the most important thing. 
as Christianity works to regain its respect and its place in our society. See, one of the things when, when you talk to people who used to go to church but don't go anymore, when you talk to people who were raised as children in the church but now refer to themselves as being spiritual but not religious, when you talk to people who are what we would call, they've never been raised in, in a religious tradition. What do they do when they, they explain why they're not? One of the first things they'll say is, yeah, they just don't treat each other very well. They just don't treat each other very well. See, people are watching. People are watching about how we treat one another, how we talk about one another. And as our denomination is in these conversations about what to do moving forward, how we talk to and about one another in disagreement matters. Even if we split and divide up our, our tradition into a couple of different groups, how we talk about one another in doing that matters. And how you talk about one another matters. So let us listen to Jesus. Because we may have in our idea what we're supposed to do. We may hear advice from other voices telling us what we should do. But Jesus says. But Jesus says. Amen.